Hello, Dan Alasso here again with Making History. And today, once again, I am going to read you a chapter from my own book, Peppermint Kings. And this is the third chapter. It is called Essence and Peddlers. And it begins like this. The remote Massachusetts hill town of Ashfield was not the most obvious base of operation for an essence peddling business. The first road into the town was a woodland trail from Deerfield and the Connecticut River Valley. Weekly stage and postal service from Northampton was not established until 1789, and there was no post office until 1814, when Levi Cook became postmaster and devoted a corner of his saddle shop to distributing the weekly mail. All of Ashfield celebrated in March 1824 when a daily mail stage from Greenfield to Albany, New York began making early morning stops. The stage started from Greenfield at 3 o'clock each morning and reached Ashfield via Conway between 5 and 6. According to a resident who remembered the service, it was a lively scene when in the early dawn with the bugle blasts, the four-horse coach rolled into the street from the east and with its eight or ten passengers pulled up at the hotel to change horses while Esquire Cook hurried to change the mail. Then on through Spruce Corner and Plainfield to Barker's in Savoy to Adams and on to Albany where they arrived the next morning at three. The fare from Greenfield to Albany was three dollars. Peppermint oil had likely been carried through the Berkshires along what would become the mail route between Ashfield and Albany long before Samuel Ranney brought peppermint roots to Ashfield. Lanesboro distillers had grown, distilled, and sold peppermint oil and the essence since 1800, and Pittsfield and Lennox entered the business in the 1820s. But the unprecedented scale of peppermint growing in Ashfield and the lucrative peddler trade Henry Ranney helped develop brought Ashfield the lion's share of the credit for propelling the peppermint oil industry through its first phase of development. From the time that Samuel Ranney first planted peppermint roots in Ashfield, around 1812, the town's peppermint oil business grew rapidly. Many histories of agriculture and of the market transition in the early republic focus on the subsistence-first nature of farming, especially in remote rural communities. Historians observe that Commodities such as wheat, barley, and apples had primary uses as food products. Surpluses might be fermented and distilled for storage, home use, or sale, but these uses were secondary. In contrast, peppermint was not a food and had limited value as a perishable fresh herb. The only reason to plant fields of peppermint was to distill it and sell the oil. All the primary accounts of distilling in Ashfield agree that although the town's stills were occasionally used to produce other spirits, they were built to process peppermint and other essential oils. Counting Ashfield stills in the 1820s and early 1830s thus shows the rapid growth of the peppermint business and its abrupt change around 1835. 
Ashfield's tax records for 1826 show that Samuel Ranney's property consisted of two houses, two barns and sheds, 35 acres of improved land, 56 ditto unimproved, one still and still house. Samuel built the sprawling house that still stands by the side of Route 116 in 1821. His brothers, Jesse and George Jr., had similar improved acreages nearby and presumably distilled their peppermint using his still. Samuel's cousin, Roswell Ranny, owned two houses, two barns and sheds, one still, still house and cider mill, and other buildings, one sawmill, grist mill, 117 acres improved land, 100 ditto unimproved. Although a later arrival in Ashfield and his cousins, by the mid-1820s, Roswell was already one of the town's most prosperous farmers. Roswell, the son of George Ranney Sr.'s younger brother Thomas, had arrived in Ashfield in 1792 at the age of 10. He was an energetic young man and in 1821 was one of only 10 farmers in the town who managed to harvest as much as 50 bushels of corn annually. In 1803, Roswell married Irinda Bement, a cousin of the local merchant Jasper Bement, who later mentored Henry Ranney in his mercantile business and entered the essence business. Roswell was active in local politics, leading town meetings, and serving twice as militia captain and twice as a representative to the legislature in Boston. In 1828, Ashfield's tax assessors found even more stills. Roswell's brother-in-law, Samuel Bement, owned a still and house. Jasper Bement had built a still and a still house and had a half interest in a cider mill. A few more cider mills appeared over the years, and since peppermint distilling is seasonal work, Ashfield stills were occasionally put to other uses in the off-season. But the fact that Ashfield never produced a surplus of grain supports the claim made in all the memoirs and histories that the main purpose of Ashfield stills was distilling peppermint and other essential oils. By 1830, the number of peppermint distillers in Ashfield had increased dramatically. Tax assessors listed 10 stills in operation. In addition to Samuel and Roswell Ranney and Jasper Bement, five other Ashfield farmers had built stills and still houses. Even the namesake nephew of river god Israel Williams operated two stills. Although local distillers did not know it at the time, the 1830 assessment marked the peak of peppermint oil production in Ashfield. Itinerant sales, or peddling, is probably as old as civilization. The practice was well established in Europe in the Middle Ages and seems to have begun in the Americas as soon as Europeans settled here. Peddlers sold a surprisingly wide variety of goods in early America, ranging from small, inexpensive items such as pins, ribbons, and buttons, to tinware, clocks, pottery, chairs, and even washing machines. Low population density and underdeveloped transportation networks made peddling a relatively efficient way to bring manufactured goods to rural markets. In the presence of a salesman in a remote farmyard or kitchen, 
was a strong influence on rural people to consume goods produced beyond the bounds of home production or even their local market. Some historians have suggested that peddlers helped to create a culture of consumption in early America. Most histories of peddling focus on two well-documented groups of peddlers, Yankee peddlers of Connecticut and Jewish peddlers of the second half of the 19th century. An important group of early American peddlers has been all but forgotten. Although essence peddlers were ubiquitous enough in the first half of the 19th century to become the subjects of songs, jokes, cartoons, and the source of a slang term for skunk, a contemporary search for the term essence peddler in historical writing returns only a 1949 article entitled The Social Significance of the Language of the American Frontier. The fact that this article locates the origin of essence peddler on the American frontier in 1838, however, is telling. Young men from Ashfield were frequent enough visitors to remote frontier farmsteads that they were memorialized in language long after their disappearance from the social scene. Closer to home and to their own time, some 19th century regional historians remembered the trunk and basket carrying foot peddlers of Ashfield in their histories of the region. An 1888 history of Ashfield remarked that it was not far from truth to say that about the first and second generations in the present century of New England youths, when they attained to years approaching manhood, invariably supplied themselves with a pair of willow baskets or tin trunks, and with these well filled with oils, essences, pins, needles, thread, etc., suspended from their shoulders with a yoke, started out from the parental fireside to see the world and prospect for a situation in life. The local historian recalled that many thousands of these young men, full of life and energy and Yankee sagacity, thus equipped perambulated New York and the Western states. Young men from Ashfield visited all the newer sections of the West and found themselves homes and careers in the territories they had explored as itinerant salesmen. Although a bit self-congratulatory, these accounts make the important point that Ashfield peddlers helped spread not only commerce into newly settled western regions, but also some degree of the Yankee culture the historians regarded as New England's best genius, independence, and love of justice and liberty. A few historians have joined Ashfield's locals in recognizing essence peddlers. Richardson Wright, an early historian of peddling, wrote that peddlers covered the entire settled area of the United States and played an unforgettable role in the romance of our early widening frontiers. Wright observed, even Horn's Overland Guide to California, the Baedeker of the 49ers, contains the advertisement of a Mr. Cipher of Fort Des Moines, who is willing to supply peddlers at the lowest possible rates. The essence peddler, continued Wright, was quite a different sort from the typical Yankee peddler. Usually a freelance, he managed to scrape together 10 or $20 and fill his tin trunk with peppermint, bergamot, and wintergreen extracts and bitters. In the backwoods, 
these bitters were in great demand. They were mixed with the local brand of homemade liquor. Other extracts were used as remedies and antidotes. Undoubtedly, the use of essences to flavor unpalatable local alcohol, in addition to the medicinal uses discussed earlier, would have substantially expanded the market for peppermint and other strongly flavored essences. An indication that Wright may have been correct about the popularity of essences as flavorings for alcohol can be seen in an 1802 advertisement by a Philadelphia distillery. The large rum distillery in New Street, number 13, is now taking in molasses returnable in good flavored rum, where also may constantly be had on exchange or otherwise aniseed, cinnamon, peppermint, caraway, and other cordials in usual request. Some historians of the market transition have suggested that remote frontier settlements operated without commerce. A few have even claimed that settlers may have fled to the frontier to escape the getting and spending of eastern cities. The story of peddling, in contrast, suggests that peddlers brought manufactured goods and market sensibilities to the remotest frontier outposts. However much peddling may be implicated in the market transition, it is clear that peddlers helped people moving to the frontiers retain a connection with Atlantic commercial markets that had existed since Europeans began coming to the Americas. Peddling was a continuation of a type of commerce that had existed in Europe long before the colonial era. As American families moved westward away from coastal cities, peddlers kept them connected with economies beyond their remote rural communities. Many historians have characterized rural people as producers of food and raw material for urban and export markets, suggesting that farmers in remote districts did not become consumers until merchants were able to ship urban goods to their stores via rivers, canals, or rail. Yankee peddlers who visited farms and villages in remote areas of their own regions, as well as on the frontier, were of great cultural significance. They brought news, ideas, and an opportunity to be consumers as well as producers to people who might not otherwise have had these options. In some cases, historical references to Ashfield's essence peddlers have been mistaken for accounts of their Yankee Confederates in Connecticut. A passage from Nathaniel Hawthorne's diary that often finds its way into such commingled accounts actually mentions Ashfield by name. Hawthorne described a trip by coach from Worcester to Northampton in the mid-1830s. After riding outside for most of the day chatting with the driver, Hawthorne said the coach took up an essence vendor for a short distance. He was returning home after having been out on a tour two or three weeks and had nearly exhausted his stock. He was not exclusively an essence peddler, having a large tin box, which had been filled with dry goods, combs, jewelry, etc., now mostly sold out. The essences, Hawthorne discovered, are concocted at Ashfield, and the peddlers are sent out with vast quantities. 
Pawthorne wrote that the peddler was good-natured and communicative and spoke very frankly about his trade, which he seemed to like better than farming, though his experience of it was yet brief. The young Ashfielder spoke of the trials of temper to which peddlers are subjected, but said it was necessary to be forbearing because the same road must be traveled again and again. The peddlers find satisfaction for all contumelies in making good bargains out of their customers, Hawthorne explained. The peddler was on a short circuit, but was considering making a longer trip westward, in which case he would send on quantities of his wares ahead to different stations. Sending resupply shipments to stops along a larger route helped peddlers avoid carrying too much inventory. Hawthorne concluded that the driver was an acquaintance of the peddler and so gave him his drive for nothing, though the peddler pretended to wish to force some silver into his hand. And afterwards, he got down to water the horses while the driver was busy with other matters. Hawthorne's observations highlight important details of the Ashfield peddler's work. Most were young men, and many peddled for just a short time to raise a stake and enter another venture. Most traveled on foot, carrying wicker baskets of essences and tin trunks of other goods, suspended by webbing and sometimes hung from a wooden yoke. Occasionally, peddlers traveled in wagons, but this was much less prevalent with Ashfielders than with tinsmiths or the Connecticut vendors of bulky items like clocks. More often, a peddler traveling a lengthy route planned ahead and shipped resupplies to post offices along the route. Sometimes, when sales exceeded expectations, peddlers wrote to the Asheville merchants who supplied them to have additional stock forwarded to the next town on their way. These requests depended on the post because the telegraph did not reach Ashfield until the 1890s. Hawthorne mentioned the contumelies experienced by peddlers. Anyone who has worked in sales can imagine the frustrations faced by door-to-door -door salesmen. But in many remote communities, peddlers were welcomed, or at least tolerated, because they carried needed products. Although peddlers, like the young men of Ashfield, became subjects of cartoons, jokes, and even popular songs, there was great demand for the products they carried. And despite contemporary accounts like Thomas Hamilton's 1833 Men and Manners in America, which claimed the whole race of Yankee peddlers in particular are proverbial for dishonesty, the number of New Englanders making their fortunes as salesmen increased throughout the first half of the century. Hamilton continued, They go forth annually in the thousands to lie, cog, cheat, swindle, in short, to get possession of their neighbor's property in any manner it can be done with impunity. Their ingenuity and deception is confessedly very great. He was right, at least with respect to the peddler's numbers. In 1850, one account estimated there were 10,669 peddlers traveling America's roads. A decade later, the number had grown to 16,595. Although other itinerant salesmen offered lines of credit to their customers and often priced products such as clocks and furnitures to reflect carried interest and the risks and costs of collection, 
Ashfield peddlers did their business using cash. They carried hard money, and as a result, many traveled armed. In addition to essences, other wares, and the baskets and trunks used to carry them, Ashfield merchants like Jasper Bement and Henry Ranney occasionally sold pistols to the young men they sent out on the road. For example, when Ashfield Essence peddler Sextus Lilly made his first peddling trip in July 1840, his bill in Bement's ledger included 10 dozen essences, a variety of patent medicines, thread, needles, ink, pencils, combs, a basket for carrying the essences, 67 cents, three yards of webbing, 34 cents, a lock, 12 cents, and a brass pistol, $1.38. Most of the peddlers of Ashfield were supplied by Jasper Bement and Henry Ranney. Other families, like the Beldings, were very active in the production and sale of peppermint oil. But Jasper Bement, with his son Joseph and their longtime friend and partner Henry Ranney, were the focus of Ashfield's peddler business. Jasper Bement, whose cousin Arinda had married Roswell Ranney in 1803, had been involved in peppermint since at least the 1820s. Bement was among the owners of a still and still house listed in the Ashfield tax records in the 1820s and early 1830s. He opened a general store in Ashfield in the 1830s and either originated or quickly took over the provisioning of peddlers with Yankee notions and essences. When the R.G. Dunn Company's local credit investigator reported on Bement in September of 1841, he described the business as general store, jewelry, patent medicine, Yankee notions, etc., and rated Bement's creditworthiness as good. Two years later, the reporter added good, considerable property, mortgages, money at interest, etc., besides what he has in trade. Henry Sears Ranney, 1817-1899, was the third son of George Ranney Jr. and the grandson of the elder George Ranney who had moved to Ashfield from Middletown in 1780. His uncle Samuel had introduced peppermint to Ashfield five years before Henry was born. When his father moved the family to Phelps, New York in August 1833, 16-year-old Henry remained in Ashfield to pursue his career as a merchant. He clerked for Jasper Bement and lived in Bement's household for a time, preparing himself for life as a merchant in Ashfield and briefly in Boston. In 1893, Henry remembered Bement as a successful merchant, a public-spirited man of strong and sterling characteristics, the most pronounced an active abolitionist and free soiler of this region. Henry had received his start in business working as a clerk in the store Bement owned and a member of his family for six years, during which time Henry observed, I failed to receive from him a cross or impatient word. In addition to their business association, Bement and Henry were both committed to the cause of abolishing slavery in America. The entire Ranney family objected to the institution of chattel slavery, as demonstrated in letters between Henry Ranney and his brothers that Henry collected throughout the 19th century. 
Henry's friends were also free soilers, and many of those activists were peddlers. Although they helped rural people remain connected to the wider world through the products that they carried and their interactions with customers, Yankee peddlers were not welcomed by everyone when they arrived in a new town. Local merchants often saw the itinerants as competitors, and as early as 1717, Connecticut peddlers, who, as I mentioned, often traveled with wagon loads of big ticket items, found themselves taxed 20 shillings for each hundred pounds of goods they carried into a particular town. By the middle of the 18th century, many states had enacted license fees for peddlers. Historian Richardson Wright remarked, we can trace the dislike of the town for the country through practically all phases of itinerant life. Despite the fact that had there been no peddlers, there would have been no countryside distribution and manufacturing, even of the humblest household sort, could never have survived. The peddler's foe was the established, settled town merchant. But commercial rivalry was not the only reason peddlers were unwelcome. Another cause, especially in the South, was that many peddlers were quite political. Henry Ranney's customer and good friend, the Ashfield career peddler William Sanderson, was an ardent abolitionist who mentioned Liberty Party and free soil politics regularly in letters to Henry. Along with the essences and Yankee notions in his inventory, Sanderson regularly carried copies of Slavery As It Is, Testimony of a Thousand Witnesses, a 225-page Jeremiah written by Theodore Dwight Weld for the Anti-Slavery Society in 1839. Although Sanderson and peddlers like him probably found many appreciative customers for abolitionist tracts in the New England countryside, their frankly expressed politics also alienated many, especially in the South and the West. If profits were paramount, it would have been much more prudent for peddlers to leave their politics at home. Ashfield peddlers like Sanderson continued the town's long-standing tradition of political engagement, once again blurring the boundaries between local and national activism. William Sanderson was one of Ashfield's busiest peddlers in the late 1830s. In a single season, Sanderson made 20 trips, buying supplies from Henry Ranney and Jasper Bement every two and a half weeks. Bement and Ranney often sent Sanderson resupply orders to points as far from Ashfield as Brattleboro, Vermont and Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Sanderson's average order size for a trip was about $50. Sanderson paid 40 cents for a dozen vials of Bement's premium peppermint essence, six cents for pencils, 45 cents for razors, 37 and a half cents for a gross of pearl buttons, and $1.88 for a box of a thousand needles. It's not difficult to imagine Sanderson at least doubling his money on each trip. Bement and Ranny supplied more than 120 peddlers annually. About half of them traveled at least once a month during the peddling season. Unlike Connecticut peddlers of tinware and clocks who usually worked for wages, most of Ashfield Essence peddlers were self-employed. Bement's account books include only a couple of entries out of hundreds where the merchant seems to have paid the peddler to make the trip. 
and those entries could be interpreted in other ways. But Mans had business relationships with people in many of the towns his peddlers visited, and peddlers often carried letters, goods, and cash for Ashfield businessmen. Nearly all the transactions with peddlers recorded in Bement's account books were inventories of goods charged to the peddler. Bement outfitted most of his peddlers on credit, which is unsurprising as most of the young peddlers came from local families that did regular business with Bement. All the records listed products charged at consistent wholesale prices, indicating that the peddler set the retail price of his wares and pocketed the profit. Like Ranny and Bement's other peddlers, William Sanderson took a wide variety of items, but by volume and by weight, his most significant cargoes were always vials of essences, mostly peppermint. Peddlers regularly left Ashfield with baskets containing from 20 to 100 dozen glass vials of essences, the most popular being peppermint. Essence vials were bulky, heavy, and fragile. They must have been uncomfortable to carry, but they were the Ashfield Peddler's core product line. Bement didn't have to pay young men to distribute his products. Their popularity with the Peddler's customers and their profitability made Essence's the leading product of Ashfield's salesmen. After several years of peddling, William Sanderson gained enough experience and made enough money to start his own general store in the nearby town of Waitley. Still interested in politics, Sanderson corresponded with his friend Henry Ranney regularly. In the summer of 1845, Sanderson wrote, The wind blows softly by my cottage, the cats fight nights, wigs twist and turn to get into office and prevent slavery, Democrats browbeat them for so doing, but I can sit and read my heralds of freedom and enjoy the same, which is listened to with profound silence. Not an abolitionist in the center of this town, but my dear wife. Two years later, Sanderson wrote again to congratulate Henry on his new baby daughter, and then ranted on for two additional pages about the slave power. Sanderson's interest in abolition was by no means an isolated instance of Ashfield peddlers meddling in national politics. Southerners were right to be suspicious of Yankee peddlers, at least those from Ashfield. Jasper Bement and Henry Ranney were both free soil abolitionists and in the early 1840s formed the nucleus of a Liberty Party in Ashfield. In 1843, Jasper Bement campaigned for state representative as a Liberty candidate and lost, but a year later he won. Although they were interested in their businesses, Bement and Ranny were passionate about abolition. In August 1844, Jasper Bement wrote to Henry Ranny from Syracuse, New York, where Bement had stopped on his way to Detroit. Bement touched briefly on business and then offered detailed descriptions of several conversations he had enjoyed with Liberty Men and the reactions of strangers to whom he had offered abolitionist tracts at a political gathering. Bement said he was introduced to Mr. Jackson, the editor of the Democratic Freeman of Liberty paper. He began with 30 subscribers and has now got 700. 
We are gaining ground in this quarter, if I can judge from what I see. A few days later, Bement wrote again. The country seems all alive with Whig and loco mass meetings. By inquiring, I find a respectable number of liberty men in almost every place. Bement told Ranny a local liberty man had solicited him to give a lecture to a group of nearly 200 people in Hannibal. In addition to the 40 liberty activists present, Bement said, the Whigs present were rocked up, asked questions, and disputed. Some of our friends started for home in high spirits, singing the Liberty Ball. Some of the Whigs were almost ready to vote for liberty, but they think they must vote for Clay this time to keep Texas out. In spite of being rural businessmen from a remote community in the hills of western Massachusetts, Bement and Ranny shared a lifelong involvement in national politics. They both represented Ashfield in the legislature in Boston, and they maintained a far-flung commercial network, as we will shortly see. Peddlers were an ideal means to reach a widely distributed rural retail market. But there were also concentrated urban markets, and each city and large town had its physicians, apothecaries, and patent medicine manufacturers. In 1802, for example, the Philadelphia Directory listed Calvin Flora, peppermint maker, St. Tammany. In 1804, the directory included Boyle Jonathan, peppermint maker near 27 Brewers Alley. Nor, as previously mentioned, was the only use of peppermint medicinal. In a society that drank at least four times the per capita volume of alcohol as modern America, the market for flavored cordials was substantial. New York City distiller Michael Miller announced to readers of the 1803 Daily Advertiser supplies at his cordial distillery, number 11 Barley Street, three doors eastward of Broadway, aniseed, mint, and peppermint cordials. And in 1804, the American distiller included a section entitled How to Make Peppermint Essence. By 1805, production of peppermint essence was widespread enough that glass manufacturers did not need to await orders from merchants like Bement. A broker named William Little of 49 State Street, Boston, advertised a diverse variety of surplus products, including window glass, many sizes, 40 gross essence of peppermint vials, an assortment of warranted anchors. Perhaps Little Supplier had produced a large volume of vials imprinted with essence of peppermint for a specific customer and was selling the surplus quantity. But the fact that the broker expected to find a buyer simply by offering the vials within a list of disparate products suggests a fairly wide market. An 1808 advertisement in Utica's Columbian Gazette announced drugs and medicine at the sign of the Good Samaritan, Solomon Walcott, has received an addition to his former stock, a thousand essence peppermint, instruments, mortars, scales, and shop furniture, peppermint bottles, etc., etc. It's okay. And in 1809, an ad in the New York Gazette and General Advertiser advised of opium, etc., 10 pounds oil peppermint for sale by John Wade, 181 Water Street. A four ounce vial 
of peppermint essence contained less than an ounce of peppermint oil. So 10 pounds was enough to make quite a bit of retail product. Wholesalers cast a wide net. In April 1814, the Washingtonian in Windsor, Vermont carried an advertisement for peppermint oil for sale in Boston at the Wholesale and Retail Chemical and Drug Warehouse, number one Liberty Square, Boston, Paul Spear Jr. has for sale a long list of bulk products, including 50 pounds oil of peppermint. City merchants advertised for distant buyers and also for suppliers of peppermint oil. In 1818, wholesalers J and T.L. Clark and Son at 85 Maiden Lane advertised 100 pounds of peppermint oil in the New York Gazette and General Advertiser. And J. Bissell and Company advertised in Pittsfield will contract for 200 pounds of oil peppermint and 50 oil wintergreen to be delivered the 1st October and will pay cash on delivery. By the 1820s, when the peppermint oil business was reaching its maturity in Ashfield, the volume of oil that passed through the hands of urban wholesalers had also expanded rapidly. In May 1823, for example, Charles F. Kupfer, the superintendent of the Boston Glass Manufactory, ran an advertisement in the Pittsfield Sun. The manufactory made essence vials like the ones used by Jasper Bement in Ashfield. But Kupfer was not above trying to fill the vials himself and take a bit of his clients' profits. Kupfer announced in the Pittsfield Sun, whose readers included Hudson River and Erie Canal shippers, the subscriber will purchase from two to 3,000 pounds of oil of peppermint and pay cash for the same on delivery at Boston or Albany. Any person having part or the whole on hand or desirous to make a contract for the delivery of that quantity in part or whole this fall will please forward their proposals, which will meet immediate attention. Shipments of peppermint oil along the Erie Canal began in earnest even before the canal was completed. Although construction continued to the west, the first 250 miles of the canal between Brockport and the Hudson River opened in September 1823. This eastern section of the canal passed through Lyons, New York, which was directly north of the peppermint fields of Phelps, where many former Ashfielders had settled. In 1824, the Boston Commercial Gazette reran a notice from a newspaper in Geneva, New York, of a new article of domestic manufacture. Last week was obtained from the bank in this village on a check between two and three thousand dollars, being the proceeds of sales of oil of peppermint manufactured in the town of Phelps by F. Vandermark and Company the past season and sold to a person in Massachusetts. Frederick Vandermark was the brother-in-law of Archibald Burnett, the Ashfielder who first carried peppermint roots to western New York. The success and prosperity of Ashfield's peppermint growers did not go unnoticed. In 1825, Northampton's Hampshire Gazette ran a feature story that was reprinted in newspapers all over the region, including the New Bedford Mercury and the Rhode Island American. 
The article described several hundred acres in Ashfield devoted to growing peppermint with an average yield of between 25 and 40 pounds of oil per acre. The article concluded, the process of cultivation is said to be tedious and expensive, but we are inclined to think there are but a few, if any, crops raised in this part of the country that make greater returns for the money and labor expended on them. In spite of expanding awareness of peppermint's potential profitability and some large urban sales of wholesale peppermint oil, however, Ashfield continued to dominate the essential oil market through the 1820s. A letter about the products of Ashfield written in 1824 and quoted in the history of the town of Ashfield gives the value of peppermint oil made as over $40,000 yearly. This is a significant sum. In comparison, the total value of the land and buildings in Ashfield in the town's 1826 tax assessment was $9,812.38. An 1833 report prepared by Andrew Jackson's Secretary of the Treasury, Louis McLean, noted that Ashfield has been somewhat celebrated for its manufacture of essences of various kinds, such as peppermint, hemlock, wintergreen, tansy, etc. It is estimated that 700 gross of essence at $6 per gross have been manufactured yearly for several years past. The report also declared The average amount of essential oil sold in New York, exclusive of what has been used in the manufacture of essence in town, has been $3,000 worth annually for 10 years past. It is considered fair business when the oil will sell for $2 a pound. It is now worth $5 a pound. The report listed $4,200 in essences plus another $3,000 in peppermint oil sold in New York City for a total of... $7,200. Since the reported New York wholesale receipts of $3,000 annually were an average over the previous 10 years, when peppermint oil averaged $2 per pound, the report implies that in addition to supplying essence peddlers, Ashfielders supplied the wholesale market with about 1,500 pounds of peppermint oil per year. Based on frequent newspaper notices of large transactions and the large quantities offered and solicited in advertisements, this may be a substantial underestimation. The $4,200 listed for essence sales must also be considered as a wholesale price, since it corresponds with prices charged by suppliers of peddlers like Jasper Bement. The reporter gave a price of $6 per gross. Bement sold his peppermint essence to peddlers at 40 cents per dozen. It is impossible to determine what hundreds of peddlers taking essence into the countryside from Ashfield would have made on their sales. Some were probably better negotiators than others. But if the peddlers averaged 40 cents per vial, their earnings would have been consistent with the $40,000 that Ashfield was reported to have made on oil annually in 1824. The wholesale prices reported by the Treasury Department are more relevant to comparisons with other industries, but since Ashfield's economy relied much more heavily on retail peddler revenue than its neighbors, estimates of the income derived from peddling suggest the general prosperity of the town. 
It is also significant that, in keeping with Ashfield's long-standing egalitarian ideals, the widespread prosperity of self-employed peddlers seems much more democratic than the concentrated wealth of other industries. The other manufacturing activities Ashfield reported in the Treasury Department document were forging axes and hoes worth $2,729, splitting 400,000 shingles worth $600, turning 700,000 broom handles worth $7,700, and making 3,300 pairs of boots and shoes worth $4,950. If pepper and oil had been an exclusively wholesale business, its significance in town would have been merely equal to broom handles. The advantage Ashfield had over other regions involved in peppermint oil production was that the town's economy was able to realize the retail value of the essence sold by peddlers who were overwhelmingly from Ashfield and nearby communities. While products like broom handles were simply sold in bulk at prices determined by a competitive wholesale market to Hadley, Hatfield, and other towns on the Connecticut River that manufactured brooms. While some products, such as shingles, might have been produced by local freelance workers, many were probably produced by wage workers employed by sawmill owners. Rural communities were not immune to the shift from artisanal labor to wage labor. Ashfield was lucky to have an economy built around a model of entrepreneurship that spread its rewards more widely and evenly. Ashfield's $23,179 of wholesale manufacturing income in 1833 was similar to that of similar nearby towns. Conway reported manufacturers worth $20,475, led by $13,600 in horn combs. New Salem manufactured 10,000 palm leaf hats, worth $27,500 when delivered to Boston and New York resellers, and had a leather and lumber business worth $9,550. The neighboring village of Buckland produced $9,750 in manufacturers, including 300 wooden clocks valued at $7.50 each. In the River Valley were larger towns like Deerfield, which manufactured $58,600 in wholesale products, including 205,000 brooms and 30,000 yards of wool satinette. But even when measured against these larger towns, Ashfield's widely distributed retail income was substantial. Another factor supporting claims of very high profits for Ashfield's peppermint essence business is the extreme variability of peppermint oil prices. Demand for peppermint-based products was relatively constant and predictable, but supply varied widely from season to season. It was not uncommon for peppermint oil prices to double from one harvest to the next. In 1836, for example, a list of wholesale prices published in New York newspapers quoted oil of peppermint at $5.50 to $6. In comparison, imported opium was only $3.75 for Turkish and $3.95 for Egyptian. In 1837, prices remained high. The Pittsfield Sun reported in December in a notice reprinted as far away as Philadelphia 
Among the items received on the Hudson by the Erie Canal, we notice the singular one of 6,000 pounds of oil of peppermint, valued at $30,000. When costs of a product's key component, such as peppermint oil for the peddler's essence vials, fluctuated widely, prices tended to be maintained at levels where retail sales could remain profitable even at the highest ingredient costs. This worst case approach to pricing would lead to windfall profits for the peddlers, especially for suppliers like Jasper Bement and Henry Ranney, when costs decreased. Now this is a somewhat long chapter and I'm about halfway through, so I am going to stop there and I will read the next, next time. So I hope people found this a little bit interesting. Thanks very much for listening and I will see you again next time.